0: Luke 1, verse 26, hear the Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. We pause one verses 46 to 55. Let us read that together. Luke 1, verse 46, the Word of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the Word of the Lord. After the proclamation of God's Word, we'll sing together the Song of Mary, hymn 17, Stands as 1 through to 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when you think about the course of your life, I think you know very well that it takes a period of time and maybe a number of events in your life before God has you where He wants to have you in terms of faith, obedience, and a proper response to the glory of His grace. Maybe you're still not there. It's a process for all of us. And that's not so surprising because it's a process for people in redemptive history as well. Think of Jacob and the the narratives about him in Genesis. It's full of stories about him tricking and deceiving others until he himself gets tricked and and deceived, until the Lord wrestles with Jacob at the Jabbok and teaches him about the value of, of weakness and dependence. God works with people who know of weakness and dependence. Think of Gideon and his men in Judges 7, they need to go back uh, to the river again and again with fewer and fewer men before they can go to battle according to the Lord. They, they start off with 22,000 men, and this needs to be reduced to 300 men until they realize their strength will not be in their weapons, their strength will not be in their numbers, their strength will be in the Lord, or it will not have, they will not have strength at all. Think of the Apostle Paul, an encounter on Damascus Road, a, a thorn in the flesh, despite prayers and agony until he finally learns, my grace is sufficient for you, and he becomes such a powerful instrument of the grace of God. Why? Because he knows about his own weakness and God's strength. Faith, obedience, growth and grace… It's a process for all of us. It always has been in the church. It always will be. But here's something totally amazing. Look at Mary, a young girl. Most scholars say she's about 15, 16 years old. And she receives this message from the Lord, and, and right away she gives us this amazing response. What is there to criticize here? Where, where, what is there to find fault? What can we say, she needs to progress more on this or that? It's actually been said that she is really the, the first Christian, the first one at least to, to believe in the power of Christ born in Bethlehem. We pay attention this morning to her words, the magnificat it's called, because with these words she, she magnifies the Lord. Pretty magnificent, indeed, for such a young lady. God's Word comes to you under this theme. The Lord prepares Mary for a great task by giving her faith, humility, and submission. Brothers and sisters, I suppose if you really wanted to find some fault with Mary, you might find it in verse 29 where we read in response to the message of the angel that she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. But if you want to do that, and I don't at all, the accusation quickly falls away because look at verse 35 the angel says amazing things to this young lady about the Holy Spirit, about the power of the Most High, and about a baby who would be called Holy, the Son of God, and her answer, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me. And then it happens again. She goes off to visit Elizabeth, and when she gets there, ready to tell Elizabeth her news, Elizabeth knows all about it. Even the the baby in Elizabeth's womb seems to know all about it because apparently the baby leaped in her womb at the sound of Mary's voice. Prenatal prophecy. Even a baby in a womb greets the new mother of the Messiah. And Elizabeth refers to young Mary as the mother of my Lord. It's all very amazing stuff. Mary takes it all in. That's the most amazing thing. She accepts it all. And then in response to all that, she gives us this song, the Magnificat. Oh, it's not that Mary never wonders. This is what happens in verse 29. She's, she's troubled at the greeting of the angel. She tries to reason out all these things and, that the angel says. And in verse 34, she asks, how will this be since... I'm a virgin, there's a problem there. But clearly this is a reasoning in in faith. You see that when you compare her response to the response of Zechariah. He also receives angelic revelations in, in the temple. And on the surface, Zechariah's response in verse 18 is not that different. How shall I know this, for I'm an old man and well advanced in years? Both raise objections that have to do with the sexual side of their lives. The one is too young, not yet married. The other is too old, past the age. Both are valid objections. The one rightfully says, how can this be without the use of reproductive organs? The other says, how can this be when our reproductive organs are done? Which is harder for a virgin to conceive? or for an elderly woman to conceive. The response? The old man can't sing, even speak anymore. But the young lady sings and composes a song. What's the difference? It's faith. God knows all things. Zechariah's words are words of doubt pure skepticism. This cannot be, he says. How can you prove to me that this will be? But Mary's words are words of faith. She has questions, but she believes. She's puzzled, but hey, an angel told her, and so she believes. Mary really does show all the attributes of faith. What are the attributes of faith? Well, first of all, faith is... Is, is amazement. She's amazed that this will happen to her. She does not understand how it will happen. There is just this amazement. And if you think about it, that's part of faith, isn't it? The truth is, if you have never heard the message of the gospel and never at some point found it to be incredible, then I'm not sure you really heard the gospel. I'm not surely sure you really grasped the full message of the gospel. I mean, this is incredible that, that contrary to nature, old people conceive. And this is incredible that a young woman should conceive before marriage with, without the involvement of a man. But aren't there not more incredible things? Isn't it incredible the world was made out of nothing? God spoke, and that was it. And what about the other end of history, that Jesus will return and every eye will see Him and the world will be renewed and all those events? Amazing. And what about the center of our human history, that we should be saved by a, mere, by a man hanging on a piece of wood? The truth is, if you have never stood and looked at the gospel and found it ridiculous, impossible, and inconceivable, I don't think you've ever really understood it, and that you and me should be saved. Sin keeps on cropping up in our lives. Those commandments, they keep on accusing us, and, but we know of salvation. Isn't that amazing? Mary so also finds this hard to believe, and who would take offense? Because she accepts it. That's an attribute of faith, another attribute of faith, acceptance. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Notice those words carefully. With that, she's not saying, it's so clear, now I get it. She's not saying, that's quite a plan, I'm happy to be part of it. No, she's saying, I don't don't get it at all, but an angel came from God, and he told me, and Elizabeth too. You know, Elizabeth, she also is expecting. By the way, do you know what's really amazing about this? This is an aside. Think about Elizabeth. How did Elizabeth know as soon as Mary got there about everything that was going to happen to her and everything that was going to happen to Mary we never read about an angel going to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was not there when an angel came to Zechariah. You can be sure of that because Zechariah was in the temple, and if a woman would join him there, she would die. So how did Elizabeth know as soon as Mary came about everything that was going to happen to her and Mary? Zechariah came out of the temple mute, mute, He didn't speak until eight days after the birth of John, so he couldn't tell her. Either one of two things happened. Either an angel also appeared to her, and we're not told about that. Or Zechariah did a whole lot of writing on this tablet that he had when he had to give the name of John. Maybe he had one of these. But but earlier in this chapter, she she knows everything. And. And she is just this woman who is this bulwark of faith and knowledge. And she says, my baby did this, and this is what's going to happen to you, Mary. Amazing. There's more for you to be amazed at then. But back to Mary, she's she's amazed at what God is, is going to do. And she accepts it, and clearly she accepts it from the heart. That's important. Faith doesn't always understand everything, but faith knows from the heart. You believe the Bible to be the Word of God, not because someone in catechism class lined up all the arguments for you, uh, all the arguments for and all the arguments against, and, and the arguments for were bigger than the arguments against. No, you believe the Bible because when you read the Bible and when you hear the Bible preached, it resonates as being true. And your, your heart says, this is the Word of God. So too Mary. Faith swells up from the depth of her being. My soul magnifies. My spirit rejoices. She just knows it all to be true. And notice that she too is astonished at that, the fact that this is going to happen to her. In this song, she looks down the corridors of of redemptive history and she thinks about God's promises to Abraham, about all that he has done for all his people and all the other mighty deeds he's done and will do. And she's just amazed that he has picked her for this. Verse 88, verse 48, he took notice of his lowly servant girl. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things. For me, this too is a mark of faith. We too are amazed that the God who has nations to rule and galaxies to guide and redemptive history to unfold is mindful of us, of you, of me. With all our sins and our foolishness and our flaws and our small-mindedness, God is mindful of you and me. It's amazing. What is that but sheer grace? Christianity, you know, is really not something you do, like you do a lot of things in your life. It's not something you ventured into when you decided to go to church, profess your faith, and make your commitments. At bottom, Christianity is not, done, it's not something done by you, but it's done for you and to you and in you. It's all from Him. It's what brings the surprise, the wonder, the amazement, and the words of John Newton, let us love and sing and wonder, let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder, He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame, He has washed us with His blood, He has brought us nigh to God. But the Lord not only gives Mary faith, He also gives her a tremendous amount of humility. I mean, think of this. Since the Lord has so lifted her up, and as she begins to realize the significance of what God is doing through her, she could have begun to, uh, to urge people to acknowledge her and to hold her highly and maybe even to worship her, bow down. After all, she's an instrument of God. There's in fact a part of Christendom that claims that's the only proper response to her. You need to praise her, and you need to pray to her, and and through her, Mary becomes the queen of heaven while Jesus is the king of the universe. But read Scripture, she claims none of that. She was a humble servant girl. And she remains a humble servant girl, except now she's entirely a servant to the Lord. Entirely. And she's even willing to be humbled more. Think of this if Mary has thought about all the things that the angels and Elizabeth said, she knew what this meant for her. She must have known that in a traditional paternalistic society, in a small town, she would always be seen as an unwed mother. She must be thinking about this when she says, I'm a virgin. Everyone would think that Mary had sex before marriage, either with Joseph or, shame, somebody else. Everyone would talk. Everyone would gossip. Everyone would think her son was an illegitimate child. It's there in the Gospels. It's not there often, but it's there. For example, in John 8 verse 41, which is one of the two passages where the gloves come off between Jesus and the leaders of Israel, and Jesus says to them in John 8 that they are children of the devil because I don't see anything of my Father in you. And they throw it back in His face and they say, we at least were not born of sexual immorality. That's the innuendo. You were born of sexual immorality. It's the kind of slander Mary could have known she was getting into. A life of disgrace, of scorn, and ridicule. But she says, whatever comes, I accept it. And notice that in this song, she shows that she does. There are nine verses in this song, nine (coughs) strophes. It's true that in the first three, she speaks about herself. But you have to see that nowhere in those first three does she say anything about how important she now is. There is no self-centeredness. There is no lamentation either. Oh, woe is me. This is going to happen. Shame. There's only the praise of God. How does that happen? Well, in the fourth strophe, in the fourth one, she, she talks about the mercies of God. Verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. She says, this is the nature of redemptive history. Everything flows out of the mercy of God. Nobody deserves anything. All are the objects of mercy, and she sees herself in that way. Anyone of the people of God in that history could speak volumes about God's mercy. So could she. What keeps her from being puffed up? What makes her such this wondrous lady who immediately at a very young age embraces the message? It is the mercy of God. All nations will call me blessed, she says. How true. More famous than the movie stars, more significant than the politicians, a generation or two, and we've forgotten all about either of those. But generation after generation knows about Mary, the mother of Jesus, What keeps the pride away from her, again, the mercy of God. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. It's God's mercy specifically to her that keeps her humble. She does not feel the specialness of her case because her eye is not on herself but on the constancy of God. In the infinite class of God's merciful acts, her case, however large, is but a single member of all that display of mercy. Hundreds of times since her childhood, in the home, in the synagogue, at the religious festivals, Mary had heard of God's calling out of, to, to Abraham, of the formation of her nation from Abraham. Uh, of God's great covenants to him and his seed and uh, how the way God upheld those covenants in the past and would do so again when therefore this event, this mighty event happens to her. She had its proper context already on her mind. What was happening to her, she knew, was not just happening because she personally and individually was so special, but it was happening to her nation and she was an instrument of that nation instrument of God for the nation's betterment. She was part of that nation and God's faithfulness to Abraham and to his seed. And so notice that after those six, those first three verses, there are six more verses. There are twice as many to come. But notice that in those verses, Mary will not speak about herself again. Not even once. It's not about her. It's about God. It's about His work. It speaks about her submission. Humility and submission go together. She just submits to the will of God entirely. It's part of faith, part of humility. It just says, God's way is the best way always. I heard this expression the other day. It was in a different context but I had to think about it and how true it is also here. Here's the expression. In all the world, there are two kinds of people. There are those who are humble, and there are those who will be humble. This is true the world over. Generation after generation, thanks be to God if you and I know of humility. It's a sign of God's mercy to us. But if you are not humble, if you are full of yourself, if anyone knows nothing about humility, God will take care of that, either in this life in His mercy or in the next life in His judgment. In all the world, there are two kinds of people, those who are humble, And those who will be humble. And so very necessary for Mary and for us. Because how does worship happen? Real worship, the real praise of God, it happens only if there is humility and submission. Proud people don't really praise God, they're just full of themselves. They're busy with themselves and their achievements and what their next achievements will be. You see it in the Gospels. Those proud leaders of the church. How good were they, really, at praising God? God humbles them. See it throughout history. See it in years of pastoral ministry. Don't worry about the pride, proud. God will take care of them in a way that you can't. People who know that everything originates with God and everything flows from God, they know what it is to praise God. It's the first requirement of every worship service, not a certain form of liturgy, not a certain order of things to do. Humility is what we all need. Because listen to Mary in the rest of these verses, she uses verbs in the past tense, the scholars debate whether she's talking about deeds that have happened in the past or whether she's using the past tense in a way that the prophets do when they speak about future events. They speak about them as as being so sure that they will happen that they use the past tense for it. Probably Mary is speaking about things that have happened, that are happening, and that will happen through the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Mary is aware of the great differences in ability, resources, and powers, which separates the philosophers and the rich and the kings and the aristocrats from the uneducated, the poor, and the weak, and she speaks of the great reversal that will happen through the gospel. He has shown strength with His arm. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent empty away. He has helped His servant Israel to remember His mercy as He spoke to our fathers. It speaks about a greater reversal. The rich and the powerful and the strong will be humbled, and the, and the poor and the troubled will be lifted up. It becomes, actually, some people pick it up for a a revolution, a political revolution. This is a theme for a revolution. But this is a different revolution. This is a revolution that happens through the gospel. This is the revolution that happens in the church. The proud will be humbled. The humble will be lifted up. It speaks of the great reversal that will happen through the gospel. In the way in which God chooses two humble persons like herself and Elizabeth, she sees the powerful revolutionary principle according to which God will renew everything through the Messiah. Not only every person who, who humbles, who exalts himself before him, but even everything that humbles itself, that exalts itself before him will be humble. It involves a complete reversal of all human opinions of greatness and significance. The proud, those who exalt themselves and take no account of God, he will put them down, they will be humbled. The powers that be who tyrannize the poor and the lowly are deprived of their power and their high standing, while those who are truly humble will be exalted to great things. The hungry, those who realize their own need and yearn for righteousness, They will be blessed, but the rich, the self-satisfied, and the proud will be brought low. That reversal is happening in the humble home in which Mary sings. That reversal will continue in the home to which Mary goes. It will continue in her life. The girl, this girl near the bottom of the social ladder submits herself to God, becomes His servant, and becomes one of the great people in history. The reversal will happen, it will continue, Luke wants to tell us, in his gospel. Read his gospel. He's always talking about this reversal. Money is a big subject. As the poor are elevated and the miserly rich are put down. Jesus is defellowship by the leaders of the church, even as He fellowships with the sinners and the tax collectors. Despised Samaritans are embraced. Impious Jews are castigated. Women like Mary are lifted up all over the place. The reversal continues as Mary's son. What does He do? He humbles Himself to death, even on a cross, and is today exalted in the heavens illegitimate in origin in the eyes of those without faith, but so, so mighty today and tomorrow. The reversal continues into our day. Woe to critical scholarship that exalts itself over the Word of God. Woe to politicians and economists and others who imagine the Word of God is irrelevant in our day. There are the humble and there are those who will be humbled humbled by God. The principle is true, from Jacob to Gideon to Mary to Jesus and to Paul to you and me. Don't be surprised if things start to happen in your life when finally God humbles you. It's the redemptive way. In the words of our Lord, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me me, will find it. Paul expounds on the theme when he says, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the lowly things of the world, the despised things, things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him, Paul says, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that he is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, Boast in the Lord. Amen.